I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy Podcast with me, Alison Perry. Back in February, when there was snow on the ground and the schools were closed. Blimey, that seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Uh, back in February, I chatted to the wonderful, inspirational Julie Brearley. Julie is the founder of Pregnant Then Screwed, a charity which exists to campaign for better rights for pregnant women and mothers. Julie tells me how her own experience of getting pregnant and then properly screwed over by her employer led her to launch the website as a safe space for women to share their stories and how it grew into the policy challenging campaign group it is today. Julie's book, Pregnant Then Screwed, The Truth About the Motherhood Penalty and How to Fix It, is a must-read expose of the practices and systems that force women out of their jobs because they're having or have had a baby, and about how we can challenge them and demand a fairer level playing field. Before we get to that, a quick request from me. If you enjoy the podcast, I would be so happy if you could subscribe and also leave a rating and a review on whichever podcast app or site you're listening on. Consider it a bit like leaving a tip for your waiter or hairdresser. But on to the interview. Here's Julie Brearley talking about motherhood, discrimination and what we can do about it. Julie, welcome. I have wanted to have you on the podcast for ages. So it is so nice to have you here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You know, we first met about 120 years ago when I (laughs) first started my Instagram account. And I had a volunteer that was working with me on Pregnant Less Good who introduced us. And you did a takeover, didn't you, of my Instagram account? I did, I did. And then I came along to your March of the Mummies. Yeah. Um, which was an amazing protest that you organised through London. Yeah. Um, And I think I've interviewed you for a parenting magazine somewhere along the way. Have I I imagined that? Oh, I don't really remember that, have you? I mean, it could have happened. My memory is (laughs) awful. But um, it's really nice to actually properly talk to you because I don't think we've 
we've ever had a proper chat after all these years. And proper chats are so um, in limited supply right now. Like you just really want to be able to have a cuppa and, you know, that thing of like meeting someone in a cafe and just spending a couple of hours having a chin wag. It just feels so alien right now, doesn't it? Oh, it's so depressing. It's, it's um, I mean, I, I've been lucky that we have a park very close by. So I take the kids to the park every day and there's often a couple of mums in there that I know. So so you can have a bit of a socially distanced chat and honestly that is such a lifesaver even just half an hour of talking to another adult and moaning about your children it just it makes the world <laughs> world of difference to your mental health and moaning about homeschooling and all the rest of us I should explain that we're, we're recording this in February I'm mm. guessing that by the time this goes out things will have improved massively lockdown will have finished the schools will be back we'll all be merrily hugging each other in the streets what do you reckon do you think that's going to happen oh I mean I reckon definitely absolutely <laughs> let's think really positively I mean how could that not be the case I I would really hope that in March the kids are going to be back at school I mean as long as the kids are back at school I think I can just about function it's just having them at home that is the killer as soon as I heard that they were lifting some of the restrictions in Scotland and sending the kids back to school at the end of the month I looked at my partner and said shall we shall we move to Scotland this is just I just oh having just there's just no time for any break is there because you've got you know homeschooling caring your work to do the cooking the cleaning and you just want a bit of time away from your family it's really tricky because I think everyone's situation is so different in such tiny nuanced ways and I was chatting to a friend yesterday for example who her husband is like proper head down working long hours and so she is having to kind of sacrifice doing a lot of work um she's self-employed to oversee her kids homeschooling and she was saying that she seems to have taken on this kind of emotional connection to her kids homeschooling and so if one of them has a really bad day and struggles with work it completely the day's a write off for her and she's she feels terrible personally I was listening to her and thinking, okay, I don't feel that at all, but it just really (laughs) illustrates how we're all experiencing this intense situation so differently. I don't think, though, it's helped that the pressure is ramped up a lot. So I've been hearing from mothers who've said the school has put in place um, sort of punishments if you're not doing your homeschooling, which is actually really quite cruel because we're all trying to do our best and for some families it's easier to homeschool than it is for others and having that pressure on top of the stress and strains and anxieties of a pandemic and a lockdown it's just going to make people completely crack. But we, I mean, mums are doing most of the homeschooling. They're doing most of the caring. They're doing most of the cooking, cleaning and ironing and all of that other stuff as well. So it's, it, you know, they inevitably are going to feel that, that guilt, that pressure, that strain much more intensely, I think, than their partners will do during this period. And it's no surprise, is it really, that the mums are doing the lion's share of that work. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because in some ways, the pandemic has been a bit of a leveller in that, you know, so many of us are having to work from home and, you know, there is poten- there's potential to do a bit of work, a bit of housework, a bit of helping the kids with their homeschooling and then back to your work again. 
So it's kind of interesting that we hear so many stories of the men in their at their computers, heads down, cracking on with the work, and then the women scrabbling about trying to juggle mm. a gazillion things. Yeah, so there's really interesting data on this. The Institute of Fiscal Studies published data in May, which showed that for every hour of uninterrupted work that mothers are doing, fathers are doing three hours of uninterrupted work. So we know that kids, when they need something, tend to go to the mothers. And so the mothers are not being out, they're not able to do any, you know, they call it deep work, don't they? Real thinking work, because they're just always interrupted, even if the dad is meant to be looking after the kids. But the other statistic that I love quoting is that the only time the work in the home was shared was when a father had been furloughed and a mother was continuing to do her paid work. So mothers were trying to do their paid job and they were splitting all the unpaid work 50-50 with their partner, whereas their partner was just doing that 50-50 split of the unpaid work. And that's just not on, is it? It's really not fair. And inevitably, you know, this, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this a lot, Alison, but this is having a really serious, serious impact on women's careers. And we're seeing at the moment a generational rollback in maternal employment. Women are just falling out of the workforce, left, right and centre. They've had enough, they're quitting or they're being pushed out by their employers because they're not do- they're not productive enough. They're not doing their job the way they should be doing because they've got the kids at home and they can't do their job properly with the kids at home. We will definitely come back to that because I want, I want to grill you on that a little bit, a little bit further on. Um, but let's kind of Go back to the beginning. And for anyone who hasn't heard of Pregnant and Screwed, A, what rock have you been living under? (laughs) But B, um, you know, women have been getting pregnant and screwed for a long time. I mean, in in your book, you do this great, almost like potted history of the women, with the, you know, women's roles, um, in the workplace and in the home. Do you think, have we just got ideas above our station? This notion that we can be mothers and have a career. I mean, is it, are, are we just, are we just going too far with this? <laughs> well, firstly, it's really lovely to hear you talk about reading the book because I think you're the first person I've had the conversation with where they've read bits of it that's outside of my immediate family or friends. Is that um, kind of terrifying? It's terrifying. <laughs> terrifying <laughs> it's very very good let me tell you it is oh. it is a real page turner well thank you very much obviously you have to say that but um <laughs> it's <laughs> well, i mean you will know this because you've just written a book but putting it out into the world is so frightening you sort of you're terrified that somebody will read it and terrified that nobody will read it simultaneously so and it's so much of your energy isn't it anyway um yes uh, in answer to your question i mean we've used the phrase for a long time women can have it all or can women have it all and what we've actually achieved from that because we have made great strides in terms of feminism is not that women can have it all is that women are doing it all so yes they can have careers and have children but in the process they're killing themselves They are working really, really long hours if you combine their paid work and their unpaid work. 
and they are mentally and physically exhausted in a lot of ways and often mothers will say they don't feel like they're doing either of their jobs well they don't feel like they're looking after the children very well they don't feel like they're doing their paid job very well and I did um, a little bit of a survey on Instagram a little while ago to ask mothers that don't work if they wanted to work and asked mothers who do work if they wanted to give up their job. And it was really surprising. The data showed that the majority of mothers who don't work want to work and the majority of mothers who are working don't want to work. So there's no sort of, nobody seems to have found that perfect balance where they feel that they can do both really, really well. And so we're stressed and we're stretched and a lot needs to change in order for us all families to be happy in order for mothers to be happy in in order for fathers to be happy in order for children to feel completely content there's a there's a lot that needs to change so that's really what the book is looking at what we need to change yeah um and you start the book by asking the question did feminism forget motherhood because it kind of feels just bewildering that we have got to 2021 and this is still a massive problem i mean i am often shocked at the people in the organizations that forget women have these responsibilities and um, talk, you know there are feminist organizations that seem to put on events that will start just as you're putting the kids to bed and you know they're big feminist events and there's a whole group of women that can't attend because they've got these responsibilities at home we talk about the gender pay gap a lot but very rarely do people go oh well hold on a minute actually the gender pay gap is caused predominantly by motherhood we just talk about gender and and I think we've just sort of allowed this situation to persist in the name of feminism where women are doing it all and we haven't we haven't stepped back from that and said, okay, where have we, where have we really gone wrong here? Why is it, why is it that women struggle to have a career and have children? Whereas men very happily have both. They, you know, we don't question that with men. They can have children in a career with women. We often, we often can't. And so I would like to see more feminists and more, and more organizations really think think a bit more about this and think about what needs to change. Yeah. So tell me what happened um, when you were four months pregnant. That's that's where all of this, your whole campaign basically stemmed from, wasn't it? Yeah. So before, before I was pregnant, I would never have called myself a feminist. It just was not a word that I used. You know, I, I'd lived in Newcastle for years and years. I was a northerner and felt like I was one of the lads and I didn't need feminism what was this feminism nonsense it's for women who wear comfortable shoes and are a bit angry with the world and you know I like to dance to drum and bass and snog men and you know just didn't it wasn't a word that I associated with and then it I was working actually for a charity and I discovered that I was pregnant. It, it was a, it was a happy accident, but that's probably one for another podcast. And <laughs> I, I waited a little while before I told my employer. I emailed her and said, okay, look, I'm pregnant. 
I'm going to have the baby on this date. I realized that will be before my contract ends because I was on a fixed term contract. Uh, but I have a, a really great plan of what we'll do. So let's have a chat about it tomorrow and we can work through how we'll manage it. And then the next day, I vividly remember I was just brushing my teeth in the bathroom and there was toothpaste everywhere, you know, and I could hear my phone ringing and I didn't answer it. And then I listened to the answer phone message and it was a message from my employer and it just said, Hi, Jolie, I'm really sorry to have to do this, but your contract is being pulled. Could you please hand over all the work that you've done immediately? And that was it. And the phone went dead. And so, I mean, I just remember shaking, my hands shaking and pacing the floor up and down because I just couldn't quite compute what she'd said. But I, I then as I thought about it more, became more and more terrified. I had been kicked out of my job. I was four months pregnant. I had my rent to pay. And without me working, there was no way we'd be able to keep our flat. There's no way we'd be able to put food on the table. And also that was, that felt like my career was over. Any chance of a career had just been pulled from under me. So I, um, I made a few phone calls, obviously called my partner, um, called my mum, as you do. And then, as you do, <laughs> and then um, called um, my partner's stepdad, who's a lawyer and, um, asked him what I should do and how I should deal with it. He's a property lawyer. So he had no idea. <laughs> and, um, he had to sort of painstakingly explain to me that selling houses is very different to discrimination and employment. And then I started looking for organizations that might be able to help me. I didn't even know the words pregnancy or maternity discrimination. So I was just typing into Google random words like pregnant and sacked. And, um, anyway, I called a few organizations. There they was frankly not very much use. And I ended up getting a solicitor in the end. The solicitor wrote the organization a letter demanding I be compensated. The organization just ignored that letter. They threw it in the bin. And so the next stage was to take them to tribunal. Did I want to take them to employment tribunal? I asked the lawyer how much that would cost. They said, well, be in the region of about £9,000. <laughs> and who, who has £9,000 when you have just had a baby? Who has £9,000 anyway? Yeah, just burning a hole in your pocket, you know, just yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, nobody I know has £9,000 sitting in the bank account at any point. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. And then that week I went for an appointment, a routine hospital appointment, and they did a scan on me. And they said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your, your cervix has almost vanished and you could go into labour at any point. And if you go into labor now, the baby will die because I was 20 weeks pregnant. And I don't remember this next bit, but I passed out flat on the floor and was scooped up by my partner who thankfully was there. And they put me on a hospital bed and uh, talked me through the options. I had to have an operation so that they could try and sort of bolt my cervix together to keep the baby in place. And I had to take this different medication. And the doctor said to me, whatever you do, don't get stressed. 
stress is the thing that will trigger early labor. Now, of course, I just lost my job. And I do wonder whether losing my job had triggered this whole process. But, you know, obviously, I'll never know that. But stress really wasn't a choice at that point. I was extremely stressed. But I did have a choice as to whether I took my employer to tribunal or not. And going through an employment tribunal is one of the most stressful things that you can do. So I decided I had no choice but to drop the case and just get on with it. And your pregnancy ended up going fine, didn't it, after that, in terms of you went to full term and... Yeah, yeah. I always forget to talk about (laughs) that. Yeah, he is a very happy, very giddy, very lively seven-year-old a seven-year-old that told me he hates me yesterday. So that was pleasant. But, you know, that's seven. That's yeah, just standard, isn't it? Isn't it? Standard yeah. seven-year-old yeah. stuff. Um, so looking back on that, are you filled with kind of mixed emotions and feelings? Because on one hand, you must think that was definitely the right thing to do because I've got a seven-year-old now who's able to tell me that he hates <laughs> me and that's wonderful. But on the other hand, oh, the injustice and the unfairness. Well, that was that was it. That's what broke me, really, was that I had to just accept this situation. And so I had to take it easy because of the problem with my cervix. So I spent, and I didn't have a job then. I was unemployed. So I just, I would lie on the sofa with the TV on during the day, just, you know, awful daytime telly, which never makes you feel any better about the world anyway. And... um I just would cry all day and rub my stomach and beg the baby to stay put and also would be so angry that that had happened to me and there was nothing I I could do about it. I just had to literally lie there and take this discrimination. And there's a time limit, isn't there? Or there were definitely, there was a time limit. I don't know if it's changed now. Yeah, it's three months. Where, was it three months? Three months less one day. Three months you have. Yeah. From the point the discrimination occurs, you have three months less one day to raise a tribunal claim. And has that changed now? No, no, that's still For some reason I thought it had. No, we campaigned for the last six years for that to change and we haven't got anywhere with it, unfortunately. I mean, it's just bonkers when you think about how vulnerable and... You know, so many women just aren't in the place to be fighting that at that point, to not give them longer to be able to, you know, mm. yeah. fight that and, and do something about it is just bonkers. It really is horrendous. I mean, there's no other word for it. You, it takes you at least three months to turn the hurt and the confusion and the sadness into anger. And so the point that women go, okay, I feel ready now to do something about this. And I'm so angry. I have to do something about this. They come to us and we say, when did it happen? And inevitably we have to say, you're out of time. You can't take this case to tribunal. And that's just so deeply unfair. But also the, this discrimination occurs when you aren't in a place to take a case to tribunal, you're either pregnant, in which case, as we know, that sort of stress can really damage the mental health of the mother or the the growth of a fetus, or you've just had a baby, in which case 
you can barely make a cup of tea every day, can you? I mean, so masterminding a tribunal is nigh on impossible. And so to expect women to start these legal proceedings when they really are at their most vulnerable is just one of the cruelest things, I think, about our justice system. And why do you think that hasn't changed in the years that you've been campaigning for that to change? Have you ever been given any kind of an inkling as to why why you haven't been successful? Well, so the Conservative Party's response will be there is no evidence that the three-month time limit prevents women from accessing justice. But I have the evidence that proves that it, it is a barrier to justice. It's just that they haven't bothered collecting that evidence. And I would say the reason why they don't increase that time limit is because more women will bring claims and that costs the government money for them to do that. They have to, they pay, you know, a lot of money for our justice system. And it's already, our justice system is, is, falling over at the moment any claim that you bring is going to take about three years for it to go to tribunal because there's such a backlog of claims because there aren't enough judges so they want to avoid doing anything that would increase the number of claims that's quite depressing to hear isn't it yeah (sighs) um hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you um, you launched Pregnant and Screwed off the back of all of this. So, you know, um, so we should, we should say that you ended up getting another job while you were pregnant. You ended up getting mm. another job and ended up feeling like actually you were in a, in a better place um, after all of this. But then you you launched the Pregnant and Screwed campaign. You took all of that anger and frustration and put it into the campaign, didn't you? Yeah, so I did. I got a great job with a brilliant company in Manchester and I stayed with them, stayed with them after my second baby. They were, they were just fab. They were really great to work for as a working mum. But... The anger stayed with me and it continued to eat away at me. And after I had Theodore, my eldest, I met other mums when I went to parent groups and started talking about what had happened to me. And I was so shocked at the number of women that told me stories of discrimination as well. Often not as obtuse as mine, shall we say, but you know, some really harrowing stories as well. And I was just so surprised because I genuinely thought I was the only person in the world that this had happened to. I didn't think this happened commonly. I didn't read about this in papers. I didn't know that this was a thing. I just thought, 
you know, you have a baby, you go on maternity leave, you protect it if you, if your employer pushes you out. But actually the reality was very, very different. So I thought if, if I don't know this is going on, other people don't know this is going on. So I know I'll start a website. I'll get people to tell their stories anonymously and everything will change. I'll just fix it. And was that kind of, was that, was that the kind of, the sum of your idea at that point. I want to start a website and share stories and that, that's, that will be enough. Yeah, completely naively thought as soon as people see all these stories, then the government will go, Oh, this is mental. How is this? We still have happening? no idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just sort that out and off they'll go and fix the problem. <laughs> and, uh, so that, yeah, that was really why I did it. And it took, it took, quite a while to get the first 10 stories I was pleading with different women to write out their stories for me so that I could post them on the website but that but these women were traumatized and they didn't want to relive that trauma um but once I had the first 10 stories on there I then got invited onto the Victoria Derbyshire show uh, remember her yes it must have been very exciting yeah it was terrifying I'd never done anything like that before um, apart from a really dodgy appearance on um, late night. Do you remember Man O' Man? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there used to be a show called God's Gift on um, Channel 4 that was on really late at night. It was on at like half past 11. And Davina McCall used to present it before anybody knew who she was. It was that classic kind of got back from the pub, you've had a few drinks and it's the perfect thing to put on the telly, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. And it was like a really filthy version of it where people would like lick things off each other's body. Uh, well, I, I was on that when I was 16. So that was Were my you the only... liquor or the licky? <laughs> <laughs> I did not partake in any licking. There was no licking from me at all. Uh, but I did get chatted up in a fake laundrette by um, a very handsome young man. Uh, but yeah, so that was my only appearance on on television before then. We're going to have to delve onto YouTube and find this clip. Oh, and, uh, I've looked, Alison. I can't find it. I have <laughs> looked, but it, I can't, yeah, people have seen it. I've never actually even seen it, but um, it definitely exists. So we were invited to go on the Victoria Derbyshire show. Um, me and at this point, uh, I had met a brilliant lawyer in Manchester called Danielle Ayres. And we briefly had a cup of tea and a chocolate bun in Manchester and talked about what I was trying to do and she was an employment lawyer so they invited her to come on it as well and uh, one of the women who'd sent their stories in and yeah it was terrifying live tv experience and I as soon as it finished I was the adrenaline was so intense I burst into tears as soon as the cameras were switched off but but that really triggered an influx of stories so as soon as that finished you know, my phone was going off the hook with people sending in their stories and wanting to talk about the project. And that really was the kind of the start of it all. And you mentioned earlier on that, you know, we, your impression before all of this was that you had, you know, you got pregnant, you had a baby, you had a job, it was all protected by law. And that's the thing is that this stuff is illegal. So how are employers getting away with it? Yeah, it is illegal and the statistics are really frightening. So we know that bef before the pandemic, I imagine it's got much worse since COVID-19 started. But we know that 54,000 women a year 
are kicked out of their job for daring to procreate. So that's one in nine pregnant women will lose their job. And we know that 77% of working mums encounter some form of discrimination. And I think, I think employers, so I think some employers know they can get away with it. They know that it's so difficult to do anything about that type of discrimination once it happens. They know that you're vulnerable and that you're unlikely to object to that treatment. So they feel empowered to behave in a in a discriminatory fashion and that that's very concerning i also think some employers don't mean to discriminate i think they're genuinely just a bit confused <laughs> and they mean well so there's a one story that was sent to me which i think exemplifies this really well was a woman had been working for the same employer for 7 years she was doing really well her boss said to her, look, you've done such a great job. You definitely deserve a promotion. So that that promotion is in the bag, but you need to go through an interview. It's got to be a formal, formal process, but it's definitely yours. Before the interview, she told her boss that she was pregnant. She didn't get the promotion. And when she asked him why, he said he had discussed things with his wife and they had decided that her priorities would change. And you can sort of see that he really didn't mean any malice by that. He genuinely thought she needs, she won't be able to cope with this promotion when she's had a baby. She'll want to focus on the baby. I don't want to put pressure on her. And it's patronizing and it's paternalistic and it's all of those things. But you sort of, you can't, you can't feel, I can't feel that angry towards that employer because I can see why he's done that. So I think often with these cases, discrimination cases, it's really good for women to have, when they can, to have conversations with their employer and try and break down those barriers and break, break down those gender stereotypes that really exist and to say to them, yes, I am pregnant and yes, I'm having a baby, but I still want to, you know, I still want this. I still want to be promoted. I, I still want to work X number of days. Um, and if they, they sense that they're being pushed out of meetings or if they're being sidelined in any way, just really try and broach that with your employer and break down those communication barriers that can, that can exist without the meaning to because employers just feel uncomfortable and they don't really know what to do about it when you say you're pregnant. They sort they panic often. And so the result is that you are left out of these meetings and that you are ignored and sidelined. And we really do find that if women broach it, that it can really it can make a massive difference. So I mean it, it just feels like a huge, huge problem. What do you think the answer is? Because on one hand you could be thinking well, you know, I kind of feel for these employers, especially if you're a small business and if someone that you employ gets pregnant and suddenly, you know, you've got a pet from maternity and they're, they might not come back and it has this huge impact on, on your business, on your company. Yeah. So, you know, 
maybe I won't employ that woman. Maybe I'll, if, if I'm faced with a choice when I'm, you know, when I'm recruiting, maybe I'll give it to that, that bloke because he's not going to go off and get pregnant. And <laughs> obviously that's ridiculous, but you can, you can see how, how their thinking is. So how do you, what, what's the answer? Do we need to completely redesign, reshape the whole work home structure in some way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's sort of two layers there. So we need a complete change in policy and legislation, which comes from the government, to create a more equal share of caring from the outset. So a, a really fundamental change that we need is properly funded, ring fenced paternity leave. And we know that if that if that is implemented, men will take time out of the workforce in their droves. 85% of dads want to spend more time with their children. This isn't men just shirking their responsibilities. This is about a system that just doesn't work for dads as well as not working for mums. And if you look at Scandinavia and Quebec, countries where they have ring fenced that paternity leave and they pay it at a good rate, so about 80% of salary, then the numbers are insane of men taking really long periods of leave to look after their kids. And the result is an equal share of domestic, not, not an equal share of domestic labor, but a more equal share of domestic labor. And it's also, it also translates into women doing much better in their careers. They're much more likely to progress. They're much more likely to earn more money as a result. So has that, has that shift in the home? Are we seeing the effect that that's having in the workplace? So, you know, are, are, is there definitely a correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There is um, a direct correlation between the number of weeks paternity leave that a father takes and a woman's long-term pay in the workforce that's documented in every country across the world and it, make, it kind of makes so much sense doesn't it that if we if we level out the playing field so that it's not just you know, you know if employers aren't viewing women as being potential pains in the backsides in a few years time when she decides she wants to have a baby if it's a case of well actually there's just as much inconvenience employing a man potentially then surely that's got to help the situation surely yeah that's exactly it if you are of equal risk then you know you can't just stop hiring everybody (laughs) but at the moment women are the ones that are in in inverted commas the risky one um the shared parental leave of course exists but it's complete nonsense it was cobbled together quickly by a conservative Lib Dem, Lib Dem government and it does not work. Has there been much uptake of it? 2% of dads use shared parental leave, which is tiny, tiny proportion of um, fathers, but not not many men can use it or um, eligible for it. But also, it, I mean, it's so difficult to understand. I've spoken to lawyers that don't understand shared parental leave. It's just... It really doesn't make very much sense at all. But also as a family, you lose money usually if you use the shared parental leave system rather than the maternity, rather than using maternity. So, you know, there's so many barriers to using it that that's why the uptake is so low. So as well as um, ring fencing, paternity leave, what else needs to be done? Is there anything to be done with childcare and overhauling, you know, the, the system that we have there? Yes. So our childcare system is 
just a mess. We have the second most expensive childcare system in the world after New Zealand. And it's we, we did some research on this about a year ago and found that a large proportion of mums are actually paying to go to work because the childcare costs are so high in this country. Not only is the childcare really expensive and prohibitively expensive, it's also not very good. Like our childcare system just really isn't very good. Staff are so badly paid and not very well trained that the standard is, is not high and is deteriorating as the funding from the government doesn't increase. And as ch- childcare workers, we, we've seen certainly through this pandemic, you know, they're, they're desperate for more childcare workers because nobody wants to work in childcare because it's so badly paid and so, so overworked and such a stressful, intense job. Um, so we want to see a childcare system that makes sense financially for families. So ideally, no more than 15% of your wage. And we need it to be really good quality. And we need it to be available because only 60% of local authorities have enough childcare for under twos. And that will get far worse by the time this pandemic is over. We're looking at losing about 25% of our nurseries during the pandemic because actually the government has reduced funding to the childcare sector over the last few months, not increased it, which is exactly what it needs to keep going. So it, if we had a childcare system that really worked for children and for families, then you, we would definitely see more mothers feel enabled to go to work. We know that there are, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of mothers who say they can't work because of the cost of childcare. So childcare system is a big one. We really need to fix the childcare system. I know how that feels. We, when I've, got, I've got two-year-old twins and a few months ago, we, we looked into how much it would cost to pop them into our local nursery. And it's not like a big old singing old dancing nursery. It's pretty standard. And bearing in mind, okay, there are two of them. But if we were to put them in full time, it would cost us £52,000 a year. Whoa! Because it's, it's £100 each a day. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, even if I had one of them, that's 26 grand a year. So I've then got to potentially make sure that, you know, that I earn at least that, if not more. And it's just like, that's such an insane amount of money. And that prohibits such a huge number of people from putting their child into nursery and going back to work. Yeah, well, I mean, this is it. It's more than the average cost of childcare is way more than the minimum wage. So those on low pay cannot afford to use and access the childcare system. But I mean, that just means that families are falling into poverty. It makes no sense to me why the government doesn't support our childcare sector. It's infrastructure and they talk about infrastructure all the time. But when they talk about infrastructure, they're talking about buildings and railways and bridges. They're not talking about social infrastructure, the social infrastructure that really allows people to work. And childcare is such a major, major part of that. But they just see it Childcare is this, is just this. I don't, I don't know what they see it as really. I think, I think, a slight inconvenience, like this annoyance. Yes, this expensive annoyance, exactly. Because the people that are making the decisions don't need to worry about childcare, do they? Because they have nannies who do that. And so it just doesn't seem to have been a priority for this government. And yet, 
we know that for every pound you spend on childcare, you get three pounds back in terms of investment. So, you know, because obviously you get more people in work. And you're also, by investing in care, you're investing in jobs, you're investing in people's futures. And we know that if you have really good quality childcare, the outcomes, long-term outcomes for children are incredible, particularly children from deprived backgrounds. They really benefit from childcare and they do much better in the education system and do much better long-term. So they, it's a, it's an investment. It's not a cost. But the government just don't see it like that. You, you've touched a couple of times on the pandemic and the effects that that is having. Um, it, I mean, it really has affected the entire fight for equality, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, there's been so much going on over the last few months. There's been so many things that we have been concerned about. But if we, you know, just talking about maternal employment which obviously is what the book is about it's about you know the gender pay gap the motherhood pay gap um we are really seeing now a generational rollback in maternal employment some of the research that we have done has found that about 15 percent of mothers will be out of work by the time this pandemic is over and it took us 20 years two decades to increase maternal employment by just 9%. So, you know, we're, we really, this is a big problem and it's going to take us a really long time to fix because of course, once mothers are out of the workforce, it's really difficult to get them back in. They have very specific needs. We need good quality, cost-effective childcare, which we don't have in this country. We need flexible working so that we can manage our personal and professional responsibilities. And only 15% of jobs are advertised as flexible. We often need to work closer to home because we want to be available for our children should they get sick and we want to do the drop-offs and pickups. So that reduces our pool of jobs that are available to us. And school, you know, the school day finishing at 3.30 is just massively inconvenient to anybody who works, right? Yeah, I mean, those two things just don't gel together at all, do they? Nine to five at work and then school is nine till half past three. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I chatted to Christine Armstrong about this, um, the author of Mother of All Jobs. And yeah, she was saying she thinks the answer is trying to come up with a system where the school day and the working day actually works in harmony rather than being two completely separate things. Yeah, Christine and I have talked about this quite a lot, actually. Um, I would like to see a four-day working week. And there's actually a lot more appetite for a four-day working week in the last few months. Interestingly, the pandemic seems to have triggered this revival of the notion of a four-day working week. Um I I think that would really solve a lot of our problems. So I think four-day working week and um, the kids do four longer days at school. And then you've got a, an extra day with your children and in addition to your, your four working days. But it also means that your days start to slot together because the kids are at school longer on those four days. See, when you say four-day working week, my brain immediately goes to, yeah, but your employer would expect you to to be answering emails on on the fifth day. Would it really be a four-day working week? Well, we see this a lot, don't we? When um, Often when women return to work after a period of maternity leave, they ask to work part-time. 
and 40% of women in this country work part-time, which is really high compared to the rest of Europe. And four-day working week is quite a common negotiation. So often women will say, I'd love to work three days and their employer will go, oh, we can't do that, but let's do four. And what inevitably ends up happening is they actually continue to do the same job they were doing before just for less money and so they're trying to cram all of this work into four days and then they've got the day off with their child which they're spending on their emails or on their phone or trying to like finish a document feeling guilty because they're they're ignoring their child feeling guilty because they're not answering the email fast enough I mean it's just yeah exactly and it's completely unfair because then you lose out on this day's pay so I've spoken to loads of women who started off in a four-day working week and ended up just going back to five and felt much better they were actually much happier working five days a week because at least they were being paid for the work that they were doing and you're much less likely to be promoted if you're working four days a week than if you're working five days a week as well so it can often stop your career in its track but if we all worked four days a week, that would be a very different scenario because what's happening now is we're in a, the UK is obsessed with presenteeism. We love it. We love forcing people to work overtime and not paying them. But we were crowned the unpaid overtime capital of Europe in 2019. And I just read yesterday that our average working day has increased during lockdown from nine hours a day to 11 hours a day. We've increased our working day by two hours in lockdown because we're sitting at home and we're not doing the commute. So we're using that commute time to work. And because our employers feel that they they can contact us at any point in the day because you know, our office is our home. See, this is funny because I thought, not funny, but interesting, I guess is the best way of saying it. But I I would have thought that the pandemic would have helped the fight for flexible working because we've proved that loads of us can do our jobs from home. You know, companies have set up remote working, meetings, Zoom, I mean, all of that. But actually, it sounds like the opposite has happened, that, you know, we're working longer hours and harder than ever before. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So there are pros and cons. The pros being that, as you say, you know, we've women have spent decades going, please let me work from home, will you? Just give me a couple of days where I can work from home and their employer telling them it's not possible and absolutely no chance. And then as soon as the men need it as well, because there's a pandemic, suddenly we're all working from home and it was easy to do when we've been... Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny? Um, so that in itself is a little bit frustrating. I was speaking to a woman the other day who worked for a very well-known beauty company and just before the pandemic she'd had a baby she'd returned she'd asked to work from home two days a week it had been rejected and she'd had to leave her job as a result the job that she'd worked in for 12 years and had worked her way up in and then and they because they said you definitely can't work from home that's not possible we don't do that in this company and then two weeks later the pandemic hit and all of them were working from home so you can imagine how bitter she felt about the whole thing so there are, you know, the, there are good things that there is a benefit there that it's been proven that homeworking is possible. The, the bad side is that firstly, what employees are talking about now is once the pandemic is over, they're going to go to this sort of blended form of working, they keep saying. So that would be where you can go into the office if you want to, but you're also able to work from home. And that is really risky 
because what will happen is mothers will work from home, disabled people will work from home and other people will go into the office. And when you're in the office, you stand around the water cooler, you have those really important conversations that can mean you're networking, you're creating promotion opportunities. They will also be the ones sitting in the meetings, having those face-to-face conversations where decisions are made, whereas the mothers and disabled people will be at home and they'll be missing out on all those conversations. So long-term, I don't actually think it's a good thing for women at all. It's a bit like, it's a bit, it's, it's an odd reference, but it's a bit like that episode of Friends. I don't know if you've seen it where Rachel pretends that she smokes because she realizes that yeah. her boss and her colleague, every time they go out for a cigarette break, they're like doing the deals and she's getting, her colleagues getting all the, the great work and projects and Rachel's missing out. Yeah. So she takes up smoking just so she can go out and have those conversations. So. It's going to be like that. I mean, this also happens anyway to mothers because the the men go to the pub, don't they, and drink pints and slap each other on the backs and have hearty conversations about, I don't know, I don't know what men talk about, but they then end up having the networking conversations and the the slip-in work conversations that are, that can be really, really important. Whereas, you know, mothers go home and pick little Johnny up from nursery and have to do the tea and do the bedtime. So they're missing out on those vital conversations. Um, so it was sort of already was happening, but this potentially could make things a bit worse, which um, is worrying. But also, as I say, yeah, we're seeing, I thought maybe this will be the death of presenteeism when the pandemic started, because presenteeism is about bums on seats. It's about employers going, oh, well, if you're sitting at your desk, you must be doing a fantastic job. So I'll give you a promotion. Um, and mothers tend to leave work on time. But actually, we haven't seen that. We've seen people are working longer hours. And what we've also seen is that employers have found new ways around this presenteeism obsession. So they're installing, this is crazy, Alison. Their employers are installing spy software on people's laptops so that they can take photographs of you every minute to make sure you're sitting <gasps> at your desk. So there are companies that sell the spy software that have said the sales have like quadrupled under lockdown with employers wanting to spy on their employees to make sure that they're doing their jobs, which is just terrifying. Whatever happened to trust? It's it's a bit Black Mirror, isn't it? Um, really Black Mirror, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, I just, I just find that really disturbing. And it just shows how obsessive we are about this presenteeism, this input rather than output. You know, if you are sitting at your desk, then you must be doing your job. It doesn't matter what you're producing. We're not interested in what you're, you're producing. We just want to know you're sitting at your desk, which is such a weird thing. The thing is, I, you know, I, I could spend two hours sitting at my computer and I'm just scrolling Twitter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not actually doing anything. Well, you, your concentration span is 42 minutes. So any, if you're sitting at your desk longer than 42 minutes, then yeah, you're just dicking about on Facebook, aren't you? Oh my goodness. That's eye opening and terrifying. It really is. My next question for you though, Julie, is how do you stop your stress levels from being permanently sky high? Because just reading your book, I find myself getting more and more furious. <laughs> um, a lot of alcohol. I shouldn't say that. Should I? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I am angry and, and that motivates me a lot and gives me energy that I really genuinely want to change this because I've, 
I've seen, I've seen it impact so many women. And obviously I have my own experience of it. And so I'm really motivated to, to do everything I can to try and fix the problem. What's particularly hard is dealing with the trauma. And I, I had, you know, there was trauma that I was dealing with before the pandemic, you know, people who have lost their jobs, who are severely depressed, they have really bad depression and issues as a result of it. And some of the messages we get are really harrowing. But since the pandemic has started, the trauma has gone through the roof. And, um, you know, and not, not just losing your job and being depressed, but, you know, women have have died pregnant women have died during this pandemic and that you've been doing a lot of work around around the maternity discrimination around since the pandemic started haven't you yeah we've focused really on the safety of pregnant women which i feel so strongly about and i'm still so furious about that it's not been fixed and we're almost a year in um so we, we've done a lot of work around that and then obviously we've looked at redundancies with the child care sector um, have been really key focuses for us. But when the pandemic first hit and pregnant women were placed in that vulnerable category on the 16th of March, no further information was given about what that meant. So Chris Whitty said, pregnant women are in the vulnerable category. There's no evidence that COVID will, will affect pregnant women any more than it would other women, but we're doing this as a precautionary measure. And that was it. That's all he said. And there was no information about should they be going to work? Should they be completely isolating? A lot of pregnant women at that point were, they, they did isolate, didn't they? Yeah, there were, yeah, because I suppose the, the heightened anxiety when it first hit uh, meant that many employees were quite good and they did suspend pregnant women and say, okay, well, you shouldn't be coming into work. You know, we're worried about your safety, but lots of pregnant women continued to work. And because they didn't know what they were meant to be doing, and we didn't know what they were meant to be doing at this point, we had no, you know, we had to then interpret this statement and try and interpret it into employment law. So nobody knew what the answer was and how to help these women. And it was really one of the most distressing things I've ever, ever dealt with. And I was just inundated constantly. My phone was going constantly. Emails were going off the hook. Our advice line was going mad with desperate, anxious women, and we couldn't give them an answer. Um, and we managed to, in the end, we figured it out. We got the information out as quickly as we could, and then we lobbied hard for pregnant women to be kept safe. But it, you know, the, there was the, the death of Mary Aguiwepong, who was the 28-year-old nurse who died and was pregnant, and her daughter Mary is okay. Um, but that that was so harrowing because we would we had been working so hard for that not to happen and then it happened and it, i think it broke me and a few of few members of the team when when that that happened i'm still i'm now really good friends with her husband ernest and we campaign together he works with us on the campaign trail um but yes yeah, so stress levels i mean i think as well when you have kids you sort of you, you can be really stressed at work, but then you have to just switch off, don't you, for a period of time and become a mum. And that helps in a way. Uh, 
what what is really hard is is the trauma of of these personal stories and i don't know what the answer is to deal with that besides having a good cry and and i have a few glasses of wine sounds like you're a good therapist it sounds like you need some something in place which helps you offload it and stop it from affecting you i guess yeah probably do but then in a way you need it to affect you a little bit because that's you, you know, you, that that's what drives you, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, no, exactly. I think anybody who works in campaigning spends a lot of time very angry. And, um, yeah, you just sort of have to be to keep going because otherwise you just feel like you're bashing your head against a brick wall. I mean, alongside that, I get so many lovely messages from people who we've helped and that motivates you as well. You know, when you hear, when somebody contacts me and says, I've been suspended from work and you gave me the information that I needed in order for that to happen and now I feel safe again. Or somebody says I managed to get my job back because of the information the advice line gave me. Or, you know, we did some work around the vaccine recently and lots of breastfeeding women have um, said that they felt empowered with the right information when they were making a decision about whether they were to take the vaccine or not. You know, all that sort of stuff makes you think we're, we're changing things, we're, we're doing some some good and that's also motivating good definitely um you mentioned the advice line a couple of times if someone's listening and they've experienced discrimination from their employer or they're you know a bit concerned and not sure if what they've experienced is discrimination um, is the advice line the best place for them to go it is yeah and um let me see if i can remember the number because i get this wrong sometimes oh one six one two 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 nine eight seven nine i hope that's right i'll double check it and i'll put it i'll put it in the episode notes Thank you. <laughs> you know you can i only remember my own phone number you know when you were young you used to remember everybody's phone number and it's just i don't have that box in my brain anymore <laughs> it's like our brains have completely changed the way that we that we you know the, the kind of skills that we have and the things that we can do because yeah you're right i don't think any of us can remember phone numbers anymore no. we don't need to so why should we um, Jolie, to finish up our chat, um, your book, Pregnant and Screwed, is available now. And um, where can we find you online if we want to hear more from you? So I am on Instagram, Pregnant Then Screwed. Uh, Facebook, which is, mater- I'm just under maternity discrimination. They wouldn't let me have Pregnant Then Screwed on Facebook. I think they probably thought it was some sort of porn site. Um, or I'm on Twitter at Pregnant Screwed and then we've got a website which is just pregnantandscrewed.com Brilliant, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, it's been fantastic to chat to you. You're welcome yeah you too, it was lovely Alison thank you for having me on Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.